Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. What in the world is going on in Syria? I wish someone would go there and come back and tell us. Well, Judy Bello is on the administrative committee of the United National Anti-War Coalition, UNAC, and a founding member of the Upstate Coalition to Ground the Drones and End the Wars. That's Upstate New York. In the previous decade, she has traveled with peace delegations to Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, and Syria, and she has just returned from a fact-finding mission in Syria with a delegation from the U.S. Peace Council. Judy Bello, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to have you on. Uh, you went to Syria. You met with President Assad, uh, who claimed to be trying to end the fighting uh, to achieve reconciliation. Uh, was that was that believable? Um, I think it was, actually, uh, or it is, I should say. It's not just uh, President Assad who said that. We talked to... Um, we talked to Ali Haydar, who is the Minister of Reconciliation, who uh, came into his post in 2012, and he was from a socialist opposition party, and he joined the government when uh, the violence began, and uh, because uh, he he did not want his his people had started out the peaceful protest, and they did not want to be involved in the violence that uh, followed from that which they felt was coming from right-wing and foreign um, parties and had nothing to do with the real issues inside of Syria. Is reconciliation going to be possible, given that uh, the Syrian government, among others, is participating in war and dropping bombs on people? Well, I think that it's not going to be easy, and they've had some successes. But they haven't, you know, uh, they haven't really been able to unfold this in a in a fast or a big way, and I don't think they ever will. I think what it has to do with is the fact that um, the majority of Syrians remain within the government areas, uh, and the um, many of the fighters are not Syrian, and therefore, as far as they're concerned, they're not, uh, you know, war is the correct option for resisting these fighters who are being funded and um, armed by Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the United States, actually. So, but as far as the Syrians go, many of them got sucked into the war in kind of strange ways. Like, uh, in some cases, there's just all this fighting broke out and these people uh, found themselves at odds with their neighbors and joined in with the fighting. And uh, there were calls from uh, Qatar again through the Muslim Brotherhood. They were willing to pay anyone that was willing to join the war, and they were promising that there would be a grand new world and that these people who are largely among the poor and, uh, you know, people in Syria who had more problems would suddenly be the rulers of the country. And... Uh, so there were a lot of things going on. Some people, uh, when they took over uh, various cities and towns, um, they said, either join us or you'll be killed. And so people joined uh, that side. And so there were a whole lot of reasons why there are people fighting in Syria that happened to be actually be Syrian and not part of the military. Yeah. So the Syrian government's plan is to 
bring these people, uh, to offer these people an amnesty and an opportunity to be restored to Syrian society. And uh, actually quite a few people have taken them up on it. And they had one fairly large success in Tom where they cleared the, uh, what they call the terrorists. They never use any word except terrorists to describe them from a neighborhood that was had been occupied since sometime in 2000, early 2012. And there, I think it was like, I don't know, a um, couple hundred thousand people living there and uh, uh, 3,000 militants, I'll call them militants, sure. uh, who are essentially occupying the area. And um, there's no amnesty, as I say, for the foreigners. But for the ones that are actually Syrian, they eventually made an arrangement where those who wanted to stay and lay down their arms were allowed to do that, and those who did not want to uh, did not want to capitulate, so to speak, to the government's stance, were allowed to take their families, and they were bused um, to Idlib. Now, this is—I have some questions about this scenario since Idlib is now, of course, a hotbed of uh, um, fighting at this point. But so essentially, though, what they did is they cleared this uh, neighborhood of uh, several hundred thousand people and freed them from an oppressive force that was um, controlling the neighborhoods, like having the mafia be the government, and uh, restored them to the normal governance of the city. So that was one of their uh, bigger successes. And they've had, in small ways, they they use the same network of uh, people who are uh, associated with, like, the uh, different aid groups as well as the military, to reach out because some of them are people who have already fled these regions, so they're from the region. They send them, essentially, they have them make contact with the people who live there, and through the people who live there, they try to make contact with fighters who are on the, on the edge and uh, who are related to the community, and they sort of try to grow... Uh, uh, and then they start sending in resources and assistance to the community through those people. And they tr- uh, so according to what Minister Haydar told us, they basically try to build popular committees. They're doing a very socialist kind of thing, build popular committees that will support the community and that will overlap into the militants and provide them with an opportunity to rejoin the community before the lines are drawn, okay, who's going to be in a fight and who's going to um, stay with the community under the protection of the military? Well, this all sounds excellent, Judy. Uh, And and I want to get to the United States and others' disastrous Mm -hmm. roles in this country. Uh, But but did you ask Assad or anyone else in the Syrian government about their own acts of war, their own crimes, Russia's uh, reports of cluster bombs and firebombs and so on? Well, we did ask them, and essentially their answer is uh, that this is a war, and they have to protect the majority of the Syrian people, and that they cannot turn their country over to a uh, an extremist and a uh, uh, a group of people who are not representative of Syria and Syrian values, and who are who do represent a very very small minority of Syrians and a large number of external players. And so, and it did occur to me when they were saying this, and I don't use it to justify necessarily war, but I do, I I personally believe that in self-defense, 
And it, of course, this has turned so ugly and so messy that it's hard to say where the line might be drawn. But um, essentially, their stance is that um, in every possible opportunity, they try to bring the civilians out of areas before they send their fighters in. And so uh, anyone who they're fighting is part of this force that is um, terrorizing, essentially, the Syrian people. And um, in Aleppo, this is very clear, because all the while we've been hearing all these reports about hospitals being bombed and this and that, one has to understand that this is a very small, small, like, percentage of the population of Aleppo, and that they, they aren't operating in the main hospitals. They are operating in clandestine hospitals. And they are um, continually shelling civilian neighborhoods in the government-held area of Aleppo. And in fact, even in Damascus, while I was there, uh, there was uh, shelling in one of the neighborhoods, again, near the uh, near the suburbs of uh, Damascus, maybe in the area where around Ghouta, where a lot of the um, militants live. And um, they uh, just... They shelled a um, restaurant at dinner time, and they killed 11 people, and including a woman, a pregnant woman, and her little child. And um, it was a terrible uh, report when it happened. And actually, Eva Bartlett, who's a Canadian reporter who I know who's there, was living a couple blocks away. So this is ongoing all the time, continuously, and none of this comes to the Western news. So this really is like, this isn't a war that Syria is making alone on groups of people that are just hiding out, trying to get away from them. This is a war where people are attacking on the boundary and the Syrian uh, military is retaliating. And uh, civilians are being killed on both sides. Uh, well, Whereas, uh, that's 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 the point. There are always atrocities on both sides, and we don't need right, to right. counter biased communications with uh, bias in the other direction. But we've got less than four minutes left. Uh, Hillary oh, no. Hillary Clinton and her advisors are still talking about overthrowing the Syrian government. What happen? I mean, what will happen if that you know occurs? What are the possible results? Well, the the outcome will surely be, because they want to turn uh, the power over to this Saudi-led uh, group of people, the, uh, what's going to happen is similar to what happened in Iraq and Libya. It's going to be the destruction of the country. And worse than Iraq is, at least in Iraq, the faction that's ruling, although they're not doing a very good job of it, is one of the native factions in the country that's quite strong. Whereas in Syria, this will be a very small minority, uh, you know, taking over and oppressing a people in a secular, liberal country where people are educated and and, uh, where uh, the high religious people, there's a very strong uh, Orthodox Christian representation in Syria. Uh, The the Mufti is a Sunni, and he's a very high-level scholar. And uh, his son has already been killed by these people because he preached peace with the other uh, sects inside of Syria. So it, it's a very, very sad situation. And uh, the fueling it with arms, and this is the bottom line, is that by fueling it with arms and protecting U.S. allies, they continue to send fighters in there to fight uh, against 
the legitimate elected government of Syria is a crime against humanity, is a, uh, and it's a crime of the highest degree, according to the Nuremberg people, who said that aggression and starting a war is the highest crime that there is. And not just arms and fighters, but also sanctions, right? Are, is, is sanctioning yes, the yes. Syrian government and the Syrian people uh, helpful at this point? No, because it's mostly affecting the people, and they tell you they're only sanctioning rich people, but what's happened is they've closed down the uh, international banking system to uh, Syria so that they cannot use dollars. So it's similar to what was done in Iraq and Iran. Iran had a, is a bigger country with a more robust economy to begin with, but um, they, are, uh, they can't get uh, supplies for the factories. Factories that have machines they bought in, say, Europe that need to be tweaked once a year to keep functioning have fallen down because uh, owners can't get uh, the Europeans to come and uh, fix them. They can't get the uh, um, they can't get the raw materials they need for manufacturing. Uh, so factories have to close and lay people off. Meanwhile, other factories are being blown up by the insurgents. Almost all of the factories in Aleppo have been shut down by the militants. Um, the sanctions keep them from getting medicine. Uh, they can't get any cancer drugs anymore. They can't, um, the students from, uh, the university system of Syria aren't allowed to go do exchanges anymore. The students and faculty with, uh, any, uh, external, uh, uh, countries with any Western countries. The uh, Lawyers Guild no longer has any international standing, and therefore they can't, say, consider taking their issues to the international court. Um, they are just completely shut out of international commerce. They still, though, have their representative in the United Nations, and I think that's because the General Assembly would never tolerate having them kicked out. There but, is much okay. to be done, Judy, and we appreciate your going and filling us in, and we will have to have you back after your next trip around the world. Judy Bello, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. It is my great pleasure to welcome back to Talk Nation Radio Gar Alperwitz. He has been a professor of political economy at the University of Maryland and is a former fellow of King's College, Cambridge University, and Harvard's Institute of Politics. He is the author of critically acclaimed books on the atomic bomb. Alperwitz has served as a legislative director in both houses of Congress and as a special assistant in the State Department. He is the president of the National Center for Economic and Security Alternatives, co-founder of the Democracy Collaborative, and co-chair of the Next System Project, and he will be speaking at No War 2016, a conference that we at World Beyond War are organizing in September in Washington, D.C. See worldbeyondwar.org. Gar Alperwitz, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Great to be back, David. Uh, great to hear you. We uh, have just been recently past another anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is an issue you've looked at closely for years. What do you What do you make of the current state of of nuclear armament and and hopes for disarmament? Well, uh, we've got no, almost no progress at all uh, during the Obama years, unfortunately. And the president's committed to basically a trillion-dollar increase over the next 10 years in nuclear re rearming or modernization is the terms they use. So I think things are in dire straits on the 
the nuclear. We've been very, very, very lucky so far that somewhat someone has not triggered uh, use of these weapons, uh, and I think we're you know, we're we're skating on thin ice. Uh, we have yet to find a president who's willing to make this a high top priority. Uh, hopefully, at some point, we'll be able to build enough of a peace movement to make that happen. We'll have a workshop at the at the No War 2016 conference, uh, looking at the possibility of a global treaty to ban nukes, uh, which is gaining some uh, popularity outside of the nuclear nations. What do you What do you think of that strategy? Well, I think it's it's time to raise to raise those questions. We had a Secretary of State and three or four major, you know, top insiders make that proposal several years ago. So um, there's no way no way to go forward without making uh, demands of that kind. I'm, I definitely support the, the effort to try to do that. Wonderful. We uh, know that you have worked on Capitol Hill. Uh, did you see any good wars while you were up there? Uh, you know, I happened to work in the United States Senate at the time the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was uh, jammed through the Senate by the Johnson administration. Yeah. Uh, and it was obvious at the time that it was a fraud, um, you know, and it, that the president and, the, and his advisors knew that there was no significant attack, and they used this as a way to uh, jam a resolution giving them full authority to go to war uh, in, the, in the Congress. The senator I worked for, and I, I drafted um, an amendment to the Gulf of Tonkin resolution saying that it, any response to these two torpedo boats that maybe attacked or maybe didn't attack in the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, that any U.S. response should be measured and fitting to whatever happened. In other words, not much happened, so the response shouldn't be major. Um, there was an acceptance of that language as meaning as the meaning of the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, but the Johnson administration uh, ignored it entirely and, and simply went to war. So. I've seen it up close, and it's not a pretty story. It's the same thing that happened with Iraq, where some pretense was created to go to war, um, and the, and then then you know thousands, including maybe millions of lives, get lost. Shouldn't shouldn't one of the lessons have been that you know even if all the lies had been true and the weapons had been there, that didn't legally, morally, practically justify a war. And even if Vietnamese ships had shot back at U.S. ships off the coast of Vietnam, that didn't constitute aggression against the United States. Because here we are uh, with Russian planes flying near U.S. planes off the coasts of Russia, being told that this is somehow aggression against the United States, uh, as though we've learned nothing. Are there are there ways that these, these lessons can finally be learned that not only do they lie to us, but they asked the wrong question to begin with. I, no, I totally agree with you. That's exactly what happened in the Vietnam Gulf of Tonkin resolution, that, that even if you accept the administration's position, there was no reason to, you know, three million lives were lost in that war, mostly, uh, you know, peasants in Vietnam, Vietnam people yeah. who lived there, three million people. Um, you know, if you look at what happened in Iraq, you've got the same same kind of question going on. It's way, way exaggerated and out of hand, even if you accept the, the argument of the other side. Yeah, I've seen 3.8 million in a Harvard study and uh, millions more in Cambodia and Laos, where the war was taken. What, uh, what, do, you, what do you make of possible relationships between the work that you're doing these days on reforming economic structures 
and our ability as, as a public in a supposedly representative government to, to end things we oppose, like outrageous militarism. Well, I think, I think you need a policy that walks on two legs. One is, you know, to rebuild and re-energize a serious peace movement. And that's the kind of work that the conference hopefully is going to stimulate in the work you've been doing all along. On the other hand, the underlying institutional structures, the gigantic military budget and, and all of the institutions that go with it, are, li- are lined up in a certain direction that kind of prejudges in the direction of, of war. It's, a, it's an institutional problem, not just an attitudinal problem. Uh, and there's a lot of money and a lot of people and a lot of organization built that way. Uh, and secondly, on not, not so much on the nuclear front, but uh, interventions in many third world nations, uh, the corporate structure gets us into situations where some particular leadership that they like and we like gets backed, and then if there's a problem, we get sucked into some kind of support role, uh, or we try to overthrow them, as in as in Venezuela. So the un- underlying institutional problems of the corporate capitalist systems like our own uh, tend to get us into trouble abroad. Uh, and there's a long literature on this repeated again and again and again over time. So changing the underlying institutions, uh, reconstructing the system is a, is a is, is a long-term goal. And it's, and there are many other reasons why the systemic crisis, climate change, inequality, uh, racism, a lot of other issues that are posing the system question for the first time, certainly in my life. And I think there's a movement building up to begin thinking seriously about that step by step and and working from the bottom up. How uh, how central do you think the communication system problem is? I mean, here you are someone who's looked at these issues from different angles and written critically acclaimed books for years, uh, and I don't see you or people like you on CNN or MSNBC every time there's a push for a new war. I see so-called retired generals still in the pay of the of the arms industries. Well, it's it's true to a substantial degree that the media controls that, but, you know, there is an alternative media, uh, which never existed over until, you know, 10, 10 years ago, where the Internet began allowing uh, a movement to build irrespective of the mass media. So I think, uh, you know, we've got at least some openings on that front, and every now and then you see uh, uh, MSNBC allowing a critic of the, of the current situation to come in, and I think we need to press more of that. And if we if we get into fighting war, I suspect we're going to see more of it. There's a lot of lot of discontent. It's, uh, it's certainly true, and I and I'm grateful to all the stations that air this program. Uh, you know, this is alternative media, but uh, we have a long ways to go. What what do you see as the as the prospects for building a a movement across issues uh, for reform of all the systems that need reform, including a, a movement to get rid of the institution of war, that is not to reform it or fix it or Geneva Conventionize or Samantha Powerize it, but, but to abolish it? Well, I think, you know, the, what the Bernie Sanders phenomenon showed is that there's a far deeper concern in this country than most people really recognize. Uh, people, Iowa housewives calling themselves democratic socialists was not expected when the campaign started. Uh, and, you know, large numbers of people, but sometimes 40 to 50 percent in certain polls, uh, calling themselves democratic socialists. Now, there's a lot of what, what does that really mean? One thing we know, it, it 
suggest is openness to a different approach. And I think this is a time to, to push as hard as we can to open up some of the really critical issues and kind of combine it with the buildup of this progressive movement that's growing. But that's at one level, and then there's another level which is much more radical and on the organizing level. So, um, you know, the, as, a, as always, it's just a matter of rolling up your sleeves and getting down to work. But I do think that there's a much bigger opening than we've ever seen, at least in my lifetime. Do you think that if Senator Sanders had really made a, a really different foreign policy part of his campaign, a foreign policy he himself might have supported decades back, uh, or if Jill Stein or other candidates are permitted in the, the televised debates, do you think that that if foreign policy and a different peace-directed foreign policy were part of the discussion, that people would show a similar surprising willingness to to move in a in a different direction as they showed on the economic issues? I, I would not be surprised if we got a very powerful response if some of the issues were dramatized. I mean, the nuclear question in particular is just hanging there. It, it is extremely dangerous, with, you know, the, the possibilities of error with these weapons that could destroy, you know, all of New York State, not just New York City with one bomb. So I, I think that's hanging there and could be opened up in the same way that uh, Bernie opened up some of the economic issues. We haven't yet done it, uh, and it may take an accident to do it, but I think it, it's a very important time to really assume assume that people can hear something in the way that they've heard the economic message and attempt to drive and drive the, the message home. This is, this is a very important moment in, in our development. Uh, I couldn't agree more. We, we have just a couple minutes left. I don't know if you've read uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's new book, but I was struck in, in that book by his comment uh, that we're never going to get rid of nuclear weapons as long as the United States maintains such incredible dominance of the world in so-called conventional weapons, in non-nuclear weapons. That is, unless the United States leaves this war footing of seeking dominance of the globe with all the other weapons that are actually used more frequently so far, uh, thank goodness, we're not going to be able to get rid of the nuclear weapons. I, I don't hear that much from the, the very best people working on nuclear weapons abolition. Oh, he's, he's, got, he's got a... I would not overdo that point, but it certainly is an important point. Uh, because if you listen to it one way, it means there's no hope unless you get rid of the conventional stance. Uh, if you look at, look at it another way, I think you've got to do both simultaneously. Um, enough, of, enough of the in interventions with conventional forces, and simultaneously re-raise the nuclear issue. It's been, it's been dormant as a political issue, uh, and I think it's time to really open that up again, uh, just as the economic issue has been opened up unexpectedly it may very well be that we can open the nuclear issue and the, and the intervention issue. It's a very open moment in, in our history. We should assume um, we should assume there's openness until shown that you can't break through. It, it seems the, the we have about a minute left. It seems the biggest uh, elephant in the room, unmentioned, is the spending on the nuclear and all other militarism. Over half of federal discretionary spending, all other economic issues, somehow managed to get discussed without mentioning that. Uh, is there a way that we can that we can put that into the discussion? Well, I think the libertarians are the ones who've raised it. You know, they actually. <laughs> go after it on, on budgetary matters. I do think that there's an opening. To, it's so huge, and there's so many other needs that I do think that all of this is, all of this is open if we open it. 
uh, I think I think the era when these these things could not be talked about, I think, is fading. So I, I think this is a particularly open period of history to at least attempt to, to push as hard as we can. Well, I appreciate the libertarians opposing bad spending. I just wish they didn't oppose good spending too. <laughs> uh, but uh, you take what you can get, and you you work in the coalitions uh, you can build. Uh, Gar Alperovitz, thanks for everything you've been doing, and I look forward to seeing you in Washington D.C. in September. Great, and thank you for your work, David. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.